Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the show. That's right, the show. And you know all about the show. I'm not going to give you the normal preamble because I'm going to go right into it. You've always heard me say, zig when everyone else is zagging. And that is, another way of saying it is, be different, not just better. How can you double down on the thing that you feel your intuition is telling you to do, despite it being you know, classically counterintuitive? I love those people. I love that style of thinking. It's got me most of the success in my life. And that's why this show today is going to bring a lot of value because it's all about that. And the backstory here is there's a guy who I've been paying attention to for a while now called Srini Rao. He's written a few books and this most recent book, well, first of all, he's the creator of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. That's where I originally was tuned into his work. I've been on that podcast before and in his new book, he has this very counterintuitive argument that I love, which is by focusing on your very own creative work. That is on pleasing yourself, on making you happy and putting work that you love out into the world, whether that's designing a product or creating something as a designer, a photographer, filmmaker, fill in the blank, that you can actually increase all of the things that are the reasons that you're doing it for joy, for health, for productivity, for happiness, but you can also ultimately make the living and a life that you love. Because what you're doing in focusing your energy on a small audience is doing the work that you're supposed to be doing. Now, right there you say, well, what about about the market and what about this or that? My belief is that in the particular, that is in the things that you love and that that you find moving and inspiring and, and the work that you personally want to do, in the particular lies the universal. That is to say that you are not alone, that if you believe and feel and think these thoughts and that people want to see this kind of work from you, that the reality is that there's probably, if not hundreds of thousands, then maybe millions, but all you really need, and we know this from Kevin Kelly, who's also been on the show, is you need a thousand true fans. And at first you need one or two or three or eight or 10 fans. And this new book by Srini Rao, that I want to introduce you to in this particular episode. I sit down with Serini. The book is called An Audience of One. The subtitle is Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. And I posit in the show, and we, we, we cover some good ground here, but I posit that it's in this focusing on creativity for its own sake and focusing on an audience of one, that that is actually the big unlock for all of the things that you're seeking. So, Sound controversial? Might be. That's kind of one of the reasons I want to put this out there. I think Srini's done a great job, and you'll listen to our conversation. It's about a you know one of the, the classic interviews here. We talk about his new book when it's coming out. It's actually it's out now. And in fact, I should just give a quick plug because he did a creative live class the same day the book launched. So you can either go buy the book in your traditional channels at say Amazon, or if you if you go to Creative Live and buy Srini's class, you also get the book. And his name, again, is S-R-I-N-I-V-A-S, Srini. It's Srini Voss, but it goes by Srini, Rao, R-A-O. Super cool guy. You're going to love this, and I can't wait for you to dig in. So I'm going to get out of the way. First, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show 
possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits, and today Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Live classes that are on air streaming for free, anything you already own, and on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, <laughs> super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show. Welcome to Sereni, please. So the guy's got a, a handful of books under his belt. Uh, I know him originally not for his books, but as the creator of the podcast, Unmistakable Creative. Amazing show. Uh, how Thanks. many episodes? At this point, more than 700. I think I've lost count. That's crazy. Uh, but what we're here to do today to talk about your new book and this little collab between Creative Live and Penguin Random House, Audience of One. Near and dear to my heart, so I want to say welcome. And Thank you for having me. It's been a long me. time coming. I'm excited to have you here in the Creative Life Studios. Um, tell me a little bit about how you kicked this book off. Yeah, so this book is interesting uh, because I had developed this habit of writing a thousand words a day after a conversation with a guy named Julian Smith, who is Love Julian. Uh, an author and at the time uh, had one of the most popular blogs on the internet and has now gone on to co-found, or is the founder of a startup uh, called Breather, which is like Airbnb for office space. Yep. And he had been a best-selling author and he had a wildly popular blog and he mentioned this habit of writing a thousand words a day to me. And I, for some reason at that time, had an unusually high uh, demand on my uh, content production. I was writing for a startup that I was advising. I was writing three blog posts a week for my own blog. I was writing one article a week for a website called Search Engine Journal. And then we were writing a weekly newsletter for what is now the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. So it was a lot of writing. And I knew that there was no way that I could do that consistently based solely on inspiration. So when Julian mentioned this idea of a thousand words a day, I thought, well, if I do 1,000 words a day, and at the end of the week I have 7,000 words, some of it will be good. 90% of it will probably be crap, which it still is to this day, but when you do it that often, you don't need that much of it to be good. And so that kicked off this habit, and in the six months that followed, I ended up self-publishing a book called The Art of Being Unmistakable, which, uh, as you, know, you and I were talking about earlier, ended up becoming a Wall Street Journal bestseller courtesy of Glenn Beck and a, a bunch of very freakish coincidences. <laughs> And, That's a story for a different day. Yeah. <laughs> so th after that happened, I just kept up this habit for about two years, and I, I was writing quite regularly. And I wrote a piece on Medium titled How Writing a Thousand Words a Day Changed My Life. That piece went viral in 2013. Two years after that happened, uh, an editor at Penguin Portfolio found it online, and she had been working at Skillshare and had returned to publishing. Uh, she had been working in publishing before. 
And she sends me an email and says, uh, you know, I found this piece and I'm making a list of authors that I want to talk to about a book and you're first on my list. And so we ended up talking for about two or three months and what ended up happening was, uh, I remember I was about to, to get in the water, I was, I was, I'm an avid surfer, so I showed up at Trestle's, my surf spot, and I get a call from my agent and says, there's been a development, you have a few minutes to talk. And I'm looking at the clock thinking, you know what, there's about 15 minutes left before the wind comes up, can you please make this quick? And she said, well, it turns out it's not gonna be a, a one book deal, they wanna make an offer for two books. Uh, they wanted to buy my self-published book and have okay. me revise and expand it. And then the, the basis for audience of one was the idea of a thousand words a day. So instead of revising and expanding the self-published book, I ended up writing a whole new book from scratch and finished that book in six months. That was the book that came out before this. And then uh, fast forward to two years later, we start work on what was supposed to be a thousand words a day, but the more we thought about it, we thought that this is relevant to far more people than writers. Yeah. It's relevant to anybody who wants to do creative work. And uh, the funny part, thing about this book is we didn't actually have a title until it was done. Uh, nobody knew what the title was. The Google Doc basically just said book two slash creative practice. So I finished writing the entire book and then Vivian, my editor, came to us with the title, An Audience of One. And every one of us had this sort of moment of, yeah, that's the title. And that's how, that's how it came to be. All right, well, we're going we're gonna to traverse the journey of the book. But now we're going to go way back because there's a myth that, um, that creativity is this thing. It's a lightning rod that it strikes a few of us in culture and other of us are somehow untouched by this. Um, I know from your work that, you know, unlike that, you believe that creativity is a daily habit, it's in everyone. So what was your point way back in your childhood where you realized, wait a minute, this is something that's inevitable, it's in all of us, and what was your personal realization? Uh, I think that the earliest inklings of a uh, desire to express creativity, believe it or not, started uh, right around seventh grade. I had a seventh grade band director who for some reason decided to make it his personal mission to take me on as his project. And uh, I also was playing on the football team. And as you might imagine, being Indian, I wasn't genetically predisposed for football, given that I lived in Texas, where there are seventh graders the size of grown <laughs> men. And so it turned out that there was one way that you could get out of football practice, and that was if you needed to be tutored for a particular subject. I was a really good student, so that wasn't an option. But then the band director told me if I switched instruments from the trombone to the tuba, I would be able to ditch football practice to be able to be tutored for the tuba. And he kind of laid it out in front of me. He said, he's like, here are your two options. He said, you can go out and you can be a really average athlete or you can be an extraordinary musician. And I didn't have any natural music ap musical aptitude per se, but from the time I was in seventh grade to the time I was in ninth grade, in seventh grade, I missed all region band by one chair for the junior high uh, region that I was in in Texas. The next year, I was first chair in that same region. And Texas has probably the most phenomenal high school music programs in the country because if you have high school football, you have marching band, hence the reason Austin is the hotbed of music that it is. A lot of people don't know that. Oh, wow. Uh, and because of that, you also have a very competitive musical environment in which you have all state band. And so when I was in ninth grade, I had a private lessons teacher who said, we want you to try out for the all state band that's for sophomores, juniors, and seniors. You're not going to try out for the freshman band because it'll be completely pointless. You're not gonna challenge yourself and you're not gonna learn anything. And I got the lesson that at that point that if you didn't possess any natural aptitude for something, which I didn't, uh, 
you could actually get really, really good at it. I missed Allstate Band by one chair as a freshman in Texas, and we came to California, and I made Allstate Band all three years. I was in high school. And almost all of the foundation of it came from that time in Texas. But this desire to express creativity, it was somewhat stifled when I got to college. Uh, you know, I kind of fell into the trap of do something practical that will lead to a job. Because when I was at Berkeley, typically the way that career options were put in front of you, and this is really what it comes down to, is these are the options in front of you. These are the only options. Either go to med school, go to law school. If not, go find a job and then eventually go to business school. Those are really kind of your options or become a management consultant. Like literally those were the options. These are the majors. These are the options that they lead to. And so the idea that I could do something else really wasn't part of my reality at that point. So I got a job at a startup, which was one of many jobs that I got fired from uh, in the entire time <laughs> that I worked, which is, you know, we were talking about this yes. earlier. The funniest thing about the fact that we're talking in this building is that the only job that I didn't get fired from <laughs> was actually in this very building. And that was the one job where I actually got a proper goodbye lunch, whereas every other job it was like, don't let the door hit your ass on the way out. Uh, <clears throat> but through it all, what has happened in, in probably the last 15 to 20 years is that the gap between creativity and technology became a lot more narrow because when I was in college, and even when you were in college, something as simple as building a website used to take hundreds of hours and thousands of dollars. So if you had an idea, but you didn't have the technical skills to ex execute that idea, that idea was basically an afterthought. Now, we've gotten to a point now where that's not the case. And so I was always tinkering with technology. So you know, when we had uh, the first sort of version of Blogger, I remember just trying things with it. I had a friend who had started a summer newsletter when I was at my very first day job about, you know, we would write about our summers and mine were pretty much about my drunken antics in San Francisco. <laughs> and for some reason, everybody would read my, you know, ridiculous stories. And it was my way of, of navigating a day job that I absolutely hated. That habit kind of just stayed with me. But the thing is that there was nowhere to publish stuff until Blogger came along. And it was always somewhat sporadic. And then, fast forward to graduating from business school, I had been the social media intern at Intuit uh, between my first and second year of business school. And that's when I got exposed to all of this stuff. And it started to occur to me that you really could use technology to make things. And that became my default question anytime I saw a piece of technology. And to this day, that's still my default response when I see something new is to say, OK, this is really cool. What could I make using this? Because I had a mentor once who told me that he would ask people, do you know how to use the internet? Which sounds like the most ridiculous question, right? Because most right. people would say yes. And his response into that would say, great, show me something that you've made using the internet. And that, to me, was the default way in which I, I viewed the internet and technology. And it's still the way I view it to this day. So music, critical to your formative years as a creator. Which I didn't realize until now. I think that's the point that I'm trying to make, is that when you're doing something, it's really only by looking backwards that we can connect the dots. Mm -hmm. And so you said two things that I wanted to focus on. One was that you didn't think that you had any aptitude, but lo and behold, through the process of practice, you went from you know, not, being, not considering yourself a musician overtly, two, being first chair. Mm -hmm. So one, that practice mattered, and then two, that someone gave you that spark. Absolutely, I mean, teachers played such a critical role, and, and uh, I even said it in this book, I said that my ninth grade band director deserves far more credit than he will ever get for where I am today. And isn't it, uh, I wanna just like pause for a moment, it's like, I think it's a little bit tragic that right now culturally, and that's why this book is so relevant, that right now culturally, there's a, the creative 
the creativity or the creative world is having a massive like surge right now because we're realizing that um, that creativity, the way we talk around here at Creative Live, is creativity is the new literacy, mm-hmm. right? If we invest in creativity, but what uh, I'm I'm curious, what would you say to someone who does not? Because this book is it's very very broad. It mm-hmm. is made for a wide swath of people, but there are people at home right now who are like, oh, I'm not sure if that's for me. Yeah. So tell me about how you thought about that as a, as a younger person and now why this book is more relevant now than ever before. Yeah, I mean, to the answer of why this is not for me, after 700 interviews and thousands of conversations with people who listen to the work that I do and even readers, what I've realized is there's only one difference between people who are creative or who consider themselves creative and people who think they're not, and that's that people who consider themselves creative are in the habit of expressing their creativity on a regular basis. That's the only difference between those two groups of people. So the this is not for me argument, maybe not. You know, if, if it's not, I'm not going to try to convince somebody to do something they don't want right, to do. Right. But I do think the, the notion that anybody is not creative is absolute nonsense. I think everybody is creative. I think the difference is that there are certain people who are in the habit, much like the people who work here at Creative Live, all you have to do is walk around the offices, and that becomes very clear, that are in the habit of expressing this creativity on a regular basis. As far as where we're at as a culture and, and where we were before, and part of what has been really interesting about this book uh, is that I've had a really unvu- unusual view into the world of creativity and success and performance, much like the view that you get, in that I get to see the world through the lens of outliers. But one of the challenges that comes with that is that that becomes the standard by which we measure our lives. So what we've done is we've effectively created this artificial pecking order uh, using social media with fan and follower counts. We've created the illusion of status. And the result of that is that that becomes a standard by which people measure their lives. And the default narrative then suddenly becomes, if I can't put this on my resume, if I can't monetize this, and if I can't build an audience around it, it's not worth doing, which is ridiculous. Because if that was the question that people like Frank Warren, who started Post Secret, asked themselves, the world would have missed out on an amazing gift. If Brandon, who started Humans of New York, had asked himself that question, the world would have missed out on an amazing gift. Frank Warren has gone on to do things like raise awareness for suicide prevention because of Post Secret. I can't imagine the amount of people who've gotten a tremendous amount of healing just from being able to share their secrets on that project. Yeah. And what I started to see, because of the fact that we have this sort of artificial pecking order and this illusion, was that actually creativity was being stifled, despite the fact that we have all this technology and all these tools, paradoxically, it's inhibited our creativity because there's this almost status anxiety and this question of this isn't worth doing unless a million people see it. Even though when you look at the great creative people throughout history, they did their work largely out of view of an audience. In fact, that's where the majority of creative work happens. I get to sit here and talk to you today for two hours. I spent two years working on that book. So, and that's the thing with any piece of music, right? Or or you look at even, you know, the Michael Jackson, This Is It documentary, if you've ever seen that. It's incredible. incredible. And you think about the amount of work that goes into a career like that for what? A year of being on tour? And I don't think people really appreciate that there is so much joy to be found if we can get back to that place. Well, that's the subtitle, right? Reclaiming creativity for its own sake. So let's go back. Now we're going to, again, we're, we're traversing the journey of your life. Um, at what point, because creativity at that point was getting you out of football practice. Yeah. 
So at what point, at what point did you understand that you had this power that was innate in you that separated you from other species on the planet and and gave you the the faculty, the ability to put two unlikely things together to create something new and useful, i.e. being creative? I think where it really started to become apparent was when I graduated from business school in April 2009. So I graduated twice into recessions. I graduated from uh, Berkeley in December 2000, which the joke then was it was kind of like watching the most amazing party happening in San Francisco from across the bay, and then we got here and the party was over. Uh, then I graduated business school April 2009. You could not have timed like you could not have planned <laughs> nice such job bad on timing. Both of those. <laughs> you know, it, there's no way that you could have planned such bad timing. And I, I said, you know, if we had all been in college from 1992 to 1996, we'd all be millionaires right now. Or if we had been at Berkeley between 2004 and 2008, much would have been a much better situation for all my friends who were, uh, were there. But when I got out of school, there were literally no jobs. I mean, nobody was hiring because it was April 2009. You were getting MBAs trying to get jobs that paid $10 an hour. I remember somebody telling me once that a recruiter at some company got a thousand applications for a job. She literally printed all of them, took the first 500, threw them in the garbage because there's no way anybody in their right mind could go through that. Knowing that that was happening, I knew that this was a losing battle. So the first thing that I did on the internet uh, that had a public presence was this ridiculous project called 100 Reasons You Should Hire Me. And the funny thing was, I saw a project that had been really successful by this girl, Jamie Verone, who started something called Twitter Should Hire Me, which was you know, really popular, got all sorts of national media attention. She got dozens of job offers. And that was when I was uh, in my second year of business school. And I thought, well, that's genius. So I'm going to do my version of that. The only problem was I couldn't come up with 100 reasons why anybody should hire me. <laughs> so, you're like 19, and you're like, God. Yeah, I mean, I got to, I think I got to like 15, and I looked at it, and I remember I got hate mail from strangers on the internet. And, uh, it, you know, and not only that, when I looked at, back at the reasons, I said, okay, these are just the bullet points on my resume in blog form. But what I started to realize in that moment was that, wow, my resume is basically a bunch of things I claim I know how to do, but none of it is tangible evidence of the things that I say I know how to do. And so I started the very first blog that I ever started, and I started writing. And I think 13, I think a couple weeks into to writing, I, I enrolled in this online course that my dad uh, paid for. And I, I think there were 13 lessons, it was like 22 lessons, you got one lesson every week. And the 13th lesson was, 13th or 11th lesson was to interview somebody as a way to get traffic to your blog. So I interviewed one guy, and he ended up referring me to another person. So I, I built it as a weekly series until I got to the 13th interview. And the guy who was my 13th interview basically said, he's like, I don't think you're a very good writer, which he was right at the time I wasn't. <laughs> but he said, I think you do have a, a talent with interviews, so I think you should take this and spin it out into a separate site. And that was kind of the start of it all. Uh, I just saw that I could go from idea to execution faster than I could at any other time. And at the same time, I learned the lesson of, wow, this is going to take way longer than I thought it was. Because when I saw that I could do that quickly, I thought, well, I'm going to interview all these really famous people. They're going to tweet all my interviews, and every interview will go viral. And as you probably have learned firsthand, that's hmm. not true. <laughs> so in that story, you are creating for not yourself. Yeah, absolutely. You're creating because there was a purpose. And is that at what point did you realize that it's sort of the creativity in and of itself was the thing that you were chasing. Because at some point, and what I'm trying to sort of extract here is that we there's a thousand paths to get to the thing. And your path doesn't, you don't have to be a troubled youth 
and you have to find that you have this story to tell that because of X, Y, Z in your past, you get to, you have some unique privilege. We all stumble and trip and find our way into where we are through a thousand paths. And your path to me, again, you've created an amazing book here, long legacy already of 700 podcasts and a bunch of books. And you basically stumbled into your success. Absolutely. I, I, this was far from planned. So There's no when, way I could have planned this. Yeah, but when did you shift gears? Because at the beginning, you're like, I need to get a job. Yeah. And I'm looking at these other people. What I like that you were noticing is you're, they hacked culture, right? Which that's an element of creativity in and of itself to find an interesting and new and different way to get a job. But what was it that finally tripped you into realizing that, you know what? Creativity is good in and of itself, not even if it's just to get a job. So it was really right around 2013, uh, somebody sent me this collection of essays called The Life and Times of a Remarkable Misfit by uh, my friend uh, A.J. Leon, who runs a design agency called Misfit Inc. There's a good chance you've yeah. probably met him. Really interesting guy. Left a high-profile investment banking job four days before his wedding. Uh, it's it just a super inspiring story of a really interesting guy. Uh, you, you, can't not, you can't talk to him and not be inspired. So somebody put this collection of essays uh, on my Facebook page and, and said, Srinia, have you talked to this guy yet? You really should. And I remember sitting down on a Friday afternoon, I poured a glass of scotch and I, I read through it in one sitting and I just, I, I had to go back and read it again. But what struck me most about that ebook in particular was that it had completely shattered my expectation of what a free ebook should look like. It was beautifully designed. It had all this really nice artwork. It had, uh, you know, just all this stuff. And, and you looked at it and you're like, wow, you gave this away for free? And the funny story about that was that that book was actually supposed to be a traditionally published book, and he didn't like what the publisher was doing with it, so he handed back his advance, redid it, and published it as a free collection of essays on the internet, and then it got downloaded 100,000 times, and he ended then up basically, <laughs> uh, he actually went to Kickstarter oh, and wow. ended up raising all the money in four hours for physical copies of the book because he did not like what the publisher was doing. And in that moment, it became very clear to me that, okay, this was not about money. This was not about an audience. It was you wanted to create something beautiful because beautiful things is what the world deserves. And that was so inspiring to me. And I ended up speaking at his first conference. And I saw that something even, a, a, you know, like a conference could be done totally differently where every name tag was custom illustrated, where you walked into the room and it shattered your expectation of what this thing could be like. That was inspiring to me. And from that point forward, I think that, Rather than looking at myself as a marketer or a blogger, I really started to see that I could approach this as an artist instead. And you end up getting the, the visual aesthetic of The Unmistakable Creative, a event that we did where we used you know, mo movies and music, and, and like we borrowed from every art form and embedded all of those into a conference. Basically, we wanted to create a theatrical experience and underlay the business content underneath. And so as a result, you now have this body of work that doesn't look anything like it used to. And I think that my aim with everything I do is to create things that I'm proud to put my signature on. That's a really interesting measure. You know, you talked about the measure of followers, you talked about the measure of money, monetization, success, um, all the lists. But when you wake up every morning, how do you measure your own success? Because it's clearly not the carrots. Yeah. Right? How do you wake up? What's your gut check that says that you're doing? What's your North Star? Sure. Look, I think that it would be irresponsible and it would be nonsense to tell, me, tell you that I, I could care less how this book does. Of course I want it to sell. Of course I care about the results. Like I don't want it I'm to doing linger my part. in obscurity. But that being said, 
I, I think that we tend to put a lot of emphasis and a lot of effort into things that are largely out of our control. Uh, you know, particularly in terms of results, where the process is where you have a great deal of control. And if we mm. took that same effort that we put into results that we have no control over, and we put it into the process, which we have complete control over, we would create much better work and paradoxically end up with much better results. So I think for me, the biggest thing that I, as my litmus test is, have I honored the commitment I've made to do my creative work? But more than that, I think where you start to really get the good stuff is when you start to experience those deep sort of states of flow in which the world disappears, the kinds of things that Stephen Kotler and you have talked yep, about, of where you don't do this thing because it's some external reward. You do this thing for the work itself because that is what is so rewarding. If you can get to that point, you start to get all these other benefits that pretty much outweigh uh, the moments in the spotlight. All, because all the things that we look at as accolades, all those achievements, all, every one of them is temporary. Yeah. And what is actually sustainable is the joy that you get from immersing yourself in this process. So if I get to experience flow, that's a good day. So why now? I think I was trying to put some words in your mouth earlier and um, just, uh, you know, here at Creative Live, we've got you know, tens of millions of people paying attention to what it is that we're doing. I've, um, I've seen and, and you can feel the internet is an amazing tool for giving people a platform. We've talked about the democratization of creativity and its processes, but why you, first yeah. of all, and why now? Why not five years ago? Sure. And why not in five years? Why you and why now? So why me, I think, is uh, the fact that I have been really fortunate and that I've been the beneficiary of a really bizarre sort of education from this project because I never limited myself to just interviewing entrepreneurs. That was very much the impetus for why we rebranded as Unmistakable Creative. Uh, in fact, it, one of the very first things we did when we rebranded was Mars Dorian, our, our visual artist, who is this amazingly skilled artist uh, who's in Berlin, Germany. He was doing all the, the visual branding, and we had a tagline that said "Candid Conversations and create, uh, Candid Conversations with Creative Entrepreneurs and Insanely Interesting People." And the whole thing was in black. And my mentor at the time said, "Email that back to Mars and tell him to change the Insanely Interesting People part to red." And he said, "By the way, that's the most important part of the entire tagline." And I said, why? He said, because if you want to have a presidential candidate on the show in 2016, you'll be able to. And funny enough, uh, we are going to have a presidential candidate, uh, a 2020 presidential candidate on the show to talk about universal basic income uh, in wow. a few weeks. But as a result of that, I've had the opportunity to talk to everybody from bank robbers to drug dealers to performance psychologists to authors to entrepreneurs. And so that is quite I've got a list right there. You know, a, a really interesting perspective on how you could channel your creativity in all sorts of ways. Uh, but the other part of that is I've went and applied it to my own life. I've taken everything that these people have taught me. So really, in a lot of ways, this book is a blueprint for applying all the things that you've heard, whether it be on a podcast, whether it be the things they've heard on platforms like Creative Live, because many of the people yeah. in the book are, are, guests who are people who have been guests on your own platform. Yes. As far as why now, uh, I think we're at a really interesting inflection point with uh, technology and culture, particularly with social media, largely because of what you and I were talking about earlier in terms of uh, social status and pecking order, yeah. and the fact that these things are actually leading us to a great deal of unhappiness. Uh, I think that people like Cal Newport are making a really strong case for why 
we should stop. Jerron Lanier just wrote a book called 10 Reasons You Should Quit, you know, delete all your social media accounts. And I thought it was really funny because Danielle Laporte shared that book on Instagram. And of course, <laughs> she has a massive following. And I said, how is it that nobody commented on the irony of the fact that you just shared this book on Instagram? But the fact that she shared it on Instagram, uh, somebody who has that big of following and that big of an audience on that platform is talking about the potential of, of why this is destructive. That means we've arrived at a major inflection point where we have to really reevaluate what it is that we value. I think that we've done a great disservice uh, to our culture by creating this artificial sense of celebrity, uh, when in reality, when people like you and I walk down the street, probably people have no idea who we are. There's a, uh, there's a, a concept of why would you compare your own life, all of the things you know, all your laundry, with everybody else's highlight reel? Because that's really what's going on. If you're, if you, you know, when you think about it, everything else is a curated version, and you get to see your very uncurated life, right, right, front and center. Um, but in a way, like that's an opportunity because what you said in the book is you've talked about, like, basically take the things. And I saw James Victoria uh, wrote one of your your blurbs on the back, the things that made you weird as a kid yeah. make you a great creator. Take those things that are your weirdness and flaunt them. And so, you know, when you go to the, to the title of the book, An Audience of One, like that's about individuality and it's about being different, mm -hmm. not just better. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about that. Well, it's funny because I think the entire ethos of the unmistakable brand was this notion of different, not better. And where that came from was watching how people would respond to figures of authority on the internet, especially because I was interviewing so many people. And I think the thing that made it just crystal clear to me was this really hilarious sketch. And I, I don't know how old this sketch is, but it was with Dimitri Martin and John Stewart. It's about life coaching. And this woman goes in to uh, see a life coach, and Dimitri Martin does the sketch, and you know, it's like trend breakdown. And you know, he sits in on all these different sessions where he ha has this woman explain you know, what a life coach does, and then he talks to the woman who was actually the client of the life coach, and he says, so have you seen a difference in your life since going to a life coach? And she said, yeah, I'm now a life coach. <laughs> but the funny thing is that, that I saw that same pattern where you know, somebody would uh, basically start an online course about how to make money from a blog and then the person who would sign up for the online course would then become a blogger who talked about how to make money you know, from a blog. And I just kept seeing this over and over and over. Or if you saw, you know, you'd see this in so many different versions. Like you know, you'd see people with coaching programs, with fitness bloggers. Across the board, I kept seeing this, and I, I just I couldn't help but think, you know, people are, are basically just pale imitations of the people that they look up to, when in all reality, they don't have to do that, yeah. and they shouldn't do that. They're basically hiding the things that make them unique. I remember talking to a, a web designer, a guy named Paul Jarvis. He designed some of Danielle Laporte's initial websites, and he would tell me that people would come to him, and they would say, I want you to make a website that looks like that. And he would say, well, I don't want to do that for you, and it's not going to work for you because you're not Danielle Laporte. <laughs> And I saw this so many times that it just drove me crazy. And so I went out of my way to talk about the fact that this is not how we should work. I think that we should highlight what makes us unique and different uh, and abandon. You know, it's funny. There, there are things about our website. When you look at our about page, for example, it violates every best practice that anybody in their right mind would follow for SEO. It's all pictures. It's an illustrated about page. It's a cartoon. But it is probably one of the coolest pages on our site. And I realize so often what we do is we look to figures of authority 
to give us approval to try the things we want to try. And as a result, we don't try what's unique or distinctive. We try what has already been vetted or approved. And so as a result, we miss out on very unique things. And that just became the ethos of, of how we did things at The Unmistakable Creative. So like we have this free ebook called The Compass, which you can get at unmistakablecreative.com slash compass. And it, it, it looks nothing like what you would expect a free ebook to look like. I think we spent like $1,000 on it to design a free ebook. That's, right. that's a really bad use of resources, by the way. I don't <laughs> recommend anybody do that. Uh, but it's really cool. Uh, the artwork is beautiful. It was one of those things that I just had such a blast doing. And I wish more people would allow that to come through in their work. So I, was, I loved the, the book because you haven't seen it yet. It, what we're talking about is big ideas here. We're talking about creativity and finding your path and deciding who or what you're making for. But there's a lot of tactics in here. And to me, I think that's really a really valuable thing. And that's, I saw the syllabus for your class tomorrow on Creative Live. Very tactical. So I want to shift gears sure. and give a little bit of a, a sense for some of those things. Absolutely. So um, in the book, it's also the structure is beautiful. I love it. Thank so you. it's four parts. And they're all, they start with listening. So how important is listening in finding out who you are, finding out how to be different, not just better, uh, and ultimately toward creating your own art for an audience of one? Yeah. Well, the listening theme is interesting because it goes back as early as my childhood. Now, you and I are kind of close in age, so you remember there was a time in history where we used to have these things called cassette tapes, and when you played them it, too many times, they stopped playing well. So my dad handed me a copy of, of Michael Jackson's Thriller. It was my first tape. Nice. And quality, I remember quality. I had this Sony Walkman, and I would literally just play that thing over and over and over and over until it stopped sounding good. I, that's why I remember when CDs first came out, I was just absolutely <laughs> thrilled. It's like, finally, I can play this thing 2,000 times, and it won't sound bad after I play it 2,000 times. So that kind of planted this early seed of, of listening. Uh, and then obviously, you know, when you interview people, that is largely a process of listening. And so that kind of came out as the theme. But what is even more relevant as far as sort of the tactical aspects of this, in the culture that we live in today, we consume a lot of information and we have a lot of noise and a lot of things competing for our attention. Yeah. So if you've got all these different things competing for your attention, how the hell are you going to hear the sound of your own voice? And that's where we really have to start with this idea of listening is looking at the inputs that are coming into our lives and saying, okay, is this adding value to my life? Is it carrying me to the person that I want to be? Is it indicative of the person that I want to become, or is it tied me to my past, who I used to be? And I think that the way we consume information is actually not deliberate, which is harmful in numerous ways, not just in terms of social media. So if you think about it this way, right, if you were to overconsume in terms of food, like if you ate tons of junk food, you would barely be able to move. If you overconsume in terms of information, you're going to barely be able to think. And I think that as you reduce the amount of input into your life, you start to hear your creativity speak a lot louder. That's beautiful. Okay, give me some examples. I know this about you because we know one another, yeah. but uh, you write instead of use devices. Yeah. That's the first drafts are always handwritten, which to me was crazy and amazing. But you also talked uh, about and have talked uh, about not using devices in the morning. Mm -hmm. So let's get, re you know, speaking of the tactics that are going to be in your creative yeah. live class and in here, what are some tactics that you specifically do that folks who are listening might might 
say, wow, that's interesting, I might want to try that, or just sure. give us a little bit of your own personal nuance, because to me, that's why you know, humans are fascinating. So what, what is your, what are some of your practices that we should know about? So I wake up in the morning uh, and the first thing I do is brush my teeth and then I go and I set some coffee to brew. And the reason I set the coffee to brew is because I figured out uh, inside that habit loop thing that Charles Duhigg came up with, you need a cue, you need a routine and a reward. I had a really hard time developing the meditation habit until I figured out that if I put the coffee at the end of the meditation habit, I've taken care of the reward. So I go and I meditate for 10 minutes, and believe it or not, it was your interview with Stephen that got me completely hooked on the meditation habit. Uh, like, now I'm, I'm solid with it. Could I you very rarely miss a day. Life. Yeah, it's, it's so amazing. He made it, that, that was so easy, and so I do 10 minutes using the Calm app. That's the only thing I use my phone for in the morning, so I don't turn on the computer for the first hour and a half of the day. After that, what I'll do is I'll put on a pair of noise cancellation headphones. I will go and I'll leave my phone in the closet. It's kind of amazing to me that we have all these different things that we do to try and avoid distraction and try to avoid using our phones. It's like, well, why don't you just leave the damn thing out of the room? That seems so simple. Uh, so I go and I put it in a closet so I can't see it. I put it on do not disturb mode so nobody can call me. So I don't take calls from anybody before 10 a.m. I don't do interviews with anybody before 10 a.m. because I know myself well enough to know that my attention span will pretty much be done by about noon. It's pretty useless after about noon. I don't really do anything of value after 12 o'clock. <laughs> so with the noise cancellation headphones, you get to basically tune out all, all the other noise. And I think this is really largely about reducing input. Part of the reason I don't use devices is because that's another way of, of reducing input. So I read physical books because I think it forces you to read a lot slower. So I read anywhere between 40 to 50 pages. As you do this more consistently, you can easily start to increase volume. But what I always tell people is start small. Yeah, James Clear said you, redu you reduce the scope but stick to the schedule. So you could say, okay, you know what, I'm going to read 15 pages. If most people read 15 pages a day, they would be amazed by how many books they would read. There's this really hilarious uh, line in Trevor Noah's book where he said, you know, between Facebook, Twitter, it, this, I don't remember the exact words, but it was like, you've read all these things. He said, you've read a shit ton over the course of a year, but in all reality, you've read no books at all or read nothing at all. <laughs> churning. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I do that, 50 pages. Uh, then I will break open a Moleskine journal. I'll write three pages. Yeah, sometimes it's good. Most of the time it's bad. Uh, but the thing is that if you can get through 30, 45 minutes, usually right around that mark is when you'll get the seed of an idea. And what's interesting is that that is usually the point where you go from focus into flow, and suddenly what took you 45 minutes, you can do in 15 minutes. So I can go to 1,000 words, that might take 45 minutes, and then I'll write a 1,500-word piece in 30 to 45 minutes just because of the fact that I've now entered a completely different state of consciousness. Wow. So if I can maintain that for about an hour or two each day. So I turn on the computer after about three pages when I'm like, okay, I can barely read what I'm writing. At least I know what this sentence says. Now I can transfer it and basically do that. But I'll, I'll give you a few other actionable things here yeah, that yeah. are useful for your audience. So one of the things that... Uh, Sean Acor, a uh, happiness researcher, found mm -hmm. is, is that there's a principle called activation energy, which is the number of steps that are between you and the thing that you want to do. So what most people don't realize is that those number of steps are, are really small for most people. So something as simple as getting out a pen, getting a notebook, and getting a book off my shelf are three steps. Just by eliminating those three steps and setting all that stuff out the night before, you increase the likelihood that you'll do it dramatically. Oh, wow. All right? So that's one component of this. Uh, the other piece of this that I, I don't have to do this anymore, but I found that was really beneficial in the beginning. So when you're looking at a blank page, it's really frustrating because it's like, what am I going to write here on this blank page? 
Well, it turns out that your brain makes progress towards, towards a goal based on the perceived distance to that goal. And what I realized was that, well, if that's the case, what I can do is I can use a quote from somebody else or two or three sentences from somebody else, and I'm no longer looking at a blank page. A thousand words suddenly is not, the perceived distance has now changed, and the progress towards the goal accelerates. Wow. Give me one more line of detail there. So you're using a quote for inspiration to get started? Yeah, exactly. Okay, wow. And do you choose those randomly? No, they're usually chosen from something that I'm reading. Uh, if I happen to stumble up on something I'm reading, uh, and uh, it, like if you look at most of my books, mm -hmm. there's literally tons of underlines and passages. Although there's two books that I'm horrified that if I'm dating somebody and they pick those books up, they're going to see what I've underlined, and that's the 48 Laws of Power and the Art of Seduction. <laughs> <laughs> well said. Well, speaking of quotes, uh, you've got a bunch of great pull quotes throughout the book here. Um, so I'm going to read one now from Madeline Langland. I'd like you to respond. Yeah. But unless we are creators, we are not fully alive. What do I mean by creators? Not only artists whose acts of creation are the obvious ones of working with paint or clay or words. Creati creativity is a way of living life. No matter our vocation or how we earn our living, creativity is not limited to the arts or having some kind of important career. Yeah, I mean, it shows up in so many different ways in all of our lives. And I think the, the interesting thing was that I got to go back and look at the history of my own family as a part of this book. And I didn't realize that I actually come from a very creative family. I thought for the longest time that on the surface, these are not creative people, but my dad is a prolific photographer. Our house is filled with photos of us growing up. And I asked him once why he stopped taking photos. He's like, well, he's like, you guys grew up, which, you know, it's like, basically, <laughs> my, my material, we're, we're not know. cute anymore. So, <laughs> um, and my mom has, has been cooking, you know, for uh, the last 30 years. I mean, and it's funny because there's literally no recipes anywhere in our house. And if you try to stand next door on the stove and replicate it, I, I had a friend who did this with his mom. Apparently this is common to all Indian moms. <laughs> Nobody can replicate their recipes. He literally stood next to her on the stove and his food still tasted worse. But what I saw was that, wait a minute, these are all creative acts. I have a cousin. Um, she actually is a software engineer, but she also happens to be a fashion designer and a really talented visual artist and a musician. So I started to see that, wait a minute, these are all people who are doing creative things, even though their job has nothing to do with it, even though we may not necessarily think of them as art. My younger sister, who's a doctor, uh, is an incredible uh, pastry chef, for lack of a better word. I mean, she, she bakes. In fact, when she was interviewing for residency, she said one of the things that somebody asked her was, how do you make a cookie? Because she had been a... Uh, she was a hostess at this cafe in Berkeley called La Note. And so she makes these incredible desserts. Like that is her art form. That is her therapy. And that's an act of creativity. Yeah, I think also what people miss is that um, when I was taking uh, one of, sort of my layer on Madeline Lengel's quote was there's the creativity with the small C, which is art and design and photography and all the things. But that's just a subset of creativity with the capital C, right? right? There's so many things that we do whether it's the things that you've listed, but you mean, writing code, mm -hmm. wildly creative. And if you think about it, the solution to every problem that we will ever know has an element of creativity to it. And if you think about it, that creativity, even back to something as simple as these chairs, this table, everything in this room was designed. It has to be, it has to come into the mind of an artist or an inventor before it's ever, and, and be drawn or be sketched before it is ever a thing. So in reality, creativity like literally creates everything. And 
to me, there's this unlock, you know, as I'm reading your book, when you start to think about, okay, clearly everyone's creative. We all have these capacities, whether we do them overtly, whether it's through cooking or are creating our own life. Like, mm -hmm. You know, that's capital C creating. But what I loved so much about your book and what I want to go back to just for a second, if we could, is how do you stay true to an audience of one? Because to me, that's there's something there's something very very important in there, and that's the that's what hinges on your main idea here, and ultimately that's what makes things successful. If it's sort of like if you try and make something for everyone, you end up making someone something nothing for no one. Yeah. Because there is nothing that everybody loves, right? So help me understand how do you stay true to this audience of one concept? Well, I think it really comes down to, to values and standards, right? What your standards are, but more importantly, what your values are. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who, again, that kind of takes us back to looking at something they think that works, and they say, okay, well, I want to do that because it's produced that result, even though it's completely out of alignment with what they do. So it, here's a perfect example for my own life. One of the things that I made a commitment to do was to never choose podcast guests based on how popular I thought they would be. Uh, because I learned that lesson very on, early, very early on, and so I will never make a decision about who to interview based on how many downloads I think it will get, how big their audience is. Like, yeah, if people tell me, "Oh, we'll promote it to our audience," it's like, well, yeah, that's that's a very little interest to me. I could care less if you promote it to your audience. I'm much more interested in creating something that I'm going to enjoy creating, and that coincidentally my audience happens to enjoy. And so as a result, my curiosity has been the primary filter by which I make a lot of the decisions that I make. I've said no to some very well-known people, people who have actually been guests on your show. <laughs> uh, and I've done that because uh, my values are different than yeah. theirs. And I think that what's interesting is if you actually looked at sort of some of the iconic creators throughout history, Oprah being probably the most uh, perfect example that we included in this book. There's a, a really great podcast that WBEZ in Chicago did, which is, was my research for this section of the book, where when Oprah first started becoming somewhat popular, uh, it was basically her, Jerry Springer, Donahue, and whoever else. So Donahue, remember that skinny microphone? That yeah, was I mean, you're talking <laughs> about so, you know, sort of daytime trash TV. Yeah. And she intentionally decided not to stoop down to that level, even though it cost her in the ratings in the short term, and I think the results speak for themselves. And I knew that by making some of the decisions I did in terms of the way we chose to build this platform, moving away from being a platform about how to make money online and, and do all those things, that we were gonna slow down our growth. There are people who started after we did who have much bigger audiences, who have made more money, but I wasn't interested in creating something that was going to be relevant for a moment in time. I wanted to create something that was going to be timeless and have an impact on people's lives long after I'm gone. And the cool thing is that we've seen outcomes with our work that you could have never predicted in a million years. We have parents who homeschool their children using content from the unmistakable creative. We have therapists who counsel their patients. Uh, you know educators who incorporate it into their curriculum. Those are outcomes that you can't put a price on. You can't measure those. And none of those are worth compromising to me just so we could potentially have a bigger audience. So I've made values and standards the filter through which I make all of my choices. And I think that's how you stay loyal to an audience of one. And if you missed it, like that is the catapult. It's making something for one over and over. I think that's the, the, the way that I like to think about it. Um, again, having recently digested the book is in the particular lies the universal, right? Brene Brown, who's also quoted in your book, good friend, talks about 
like it's in vulnerability that we actually see ourselves and others. So when you come to me, you think you're being all strong. It's actually when you're soft and you can show a different side of you that I realize that we're the same. And so by telling your individual story in a way, you get to tell a very, very universal, because let's face it, we're all, we're all human, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you talk about daily creative habit. And I think creativity, if you think about it as a habit, not necessarily a skill, you talked about that. That's how you get started. That's how people can tap into theirs. Talk to me about how you think and, and give me a little detail uh, how you talk about it here in the book. Well, you know, we talk about habit, right? Because habit is really the foundation. Habit is the building block of virtually every creative endeavor. Mm -hmm. It starts by doing something on a consistent basis. I started to see that very quickly with that thousand word a day idea. I thought, wow, if you do something consistently, you're better off doing a small thing consistently than this big thing inconsistently. And I saw this a lot with a lot of friends, people who would have these moments of inspiration on a Saturday afternoon to build an empire, and they think that I'm gonna spend six <laughs> hours on a Saturday, when in all reality, if they did that thing for 30 minutes every day for the next six months, they would make a hell of a lot more progress. But the other thing that happens, I think, as a result of habit and doing something consistently is that you develop skill. That is the inevitable byproduct. So I think that after 700 interviews, I'd like to think that I've become somewhat skilled as an interviewer. I still think I have a lot of work to do. I go back and I listen to everything that I do. I look for things that I could have done better. Uh, sometimes listeners will send me feedback and I'll, I'll actually look at what they're saying and say, oh wow, you're right, I totally do that. Uh, and, and I try to fix that. And I, I look at, and I'll even go and, and listen to everything and say, okay, well, what questions did I not ask that I wish I would have asked that would have taken us down a different thread that would have led to a deeper conversation. Uh, so that's how you get from habit to skill. And then when you get to, to skill, skill is interesting because you get to, to a certain point where eventually you plateau, like you've kind of reached where you're going to reach on your own. And, and this is kind of one of the cool things about the course that we're teaching tomorrow is that we're bringing in Anders Ericsson, who's the expert on, on deliberate practice. But I, I think my music teachers are a perfect example of that. There's only so far you're gonna get if you can't find somebody who is better than you are at what you do. Fortunately, we live in a world in which you have access to endless amounts right. of teachers through a platform like yours, through books. I, I think that, you know, I, I've said this to, to a handful of people. I have friends who I think are far more skilled writers naturally than I am. You know, people like Amber Ray, people like Sarah Peck, uh, people like Danielle Laporte, and people like Danny Shapiro. I find that they have a sort of lyric gift, like the way they write, their words sound like yeah, music. Beautiful, yeah. And I think, in my mind, I don't possess that, but I think what I've been able to do is I've been able to learn from reading their writing and immersing myself in it and at least translate some of that into my work. But I think that the bigger thing that came from this, you know, there's a, another name on the cover of this book, a woman named Robin Delbo, mm -hmm. and Robin has been a very critical part of my ability to write books because my book deal was contingent on working with her. And I'm really glad. Uh, you know, my editor said, I'm not concerned about your ability to finish a book. I'm concerned about your ability to structure things in a linear fashion. And I said, well, that's a valid concern given how <laughs> ADD I am. So, uh, but I chose Robin specifically because she said she was going to be tough on me and she wouldn't sugarcoat any of her feedback. And as a result, she has made me a much better writer. I don't think that we're able to see our own limits and we're often blind to the fact that we've plateaued. And that's where teachers come in to get you from habit to skill, to deliberate practice, to mastery. That's part of why Creative Live exists, because you literally have the opportunity to learn from people who are 
further along in that journey yeah. than you are. And even folks like Roger Federer, they have coaches. These are the best tennis players in the world, for example, or the yeah. best. Uh, yeah, I, 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 so I, I'm a weirdo who uh, plays sports video games, but I don't watch sports. <laughs> uh, I play uh, Madden and NBA 2K18 religiously, and like literally every day, even though I could, couldn't tell you anything about what's going on in either sport. So <laughs> awesome. all of my knowledge of sports comes from video games, but I'm sitting here you know, playing a game with the Spurs, and they're talking about Kawhi Leonard, and Kawhi Leonard, who's like this lights-out three-point shooter, has a shooting coach. And I thought, wow, this guy uses a shooting coach. That's amazing. We're going to go back to habits. Okay, so I would like to know a few more of your habits. Sure. So we talked about the creative habits and how you thought about them in the book. Give us some of your specific habits. We know a little about your morning routine. Yeah. I'm dying to know like what other habits. Do you have some bedtime habits? Do you have some like what do you always do or always try to do like on a daily basis? So bedtime habits, uh, for the most part, I try to abide by this. Uh, there are days where I screw it up. I'm not immune to any of the things that I'm suggesting people avoid. I'm just like everybody else. But my default rule generally is to turn off devices after 8 o'clock because otherwise I have trouble sleeping. Uh, you know, Sleep deprivation aggravates depression, which I've had issues with. And so I started to become much more mindful about how I was handling the night before. And not only that, after conversations with people like Cal Newport and even people like Stephen Kotler, I was really aware of the fact that how you end the day has a big impact on how you start the next one. And so usually after 8 o'clock, I try not to use my phone or my computer. Uh, I try to only read physical books, so no screens after 8 p.m. because I just find that uh, you sleep better and you wake up in a much more zen-like state. Uh, I do play video games for about an hour before I go to bed, depending on if, if I have a friend to play with or if I just want to get a game in. But the other ones I think that are big in this situation are exercising habits. So if it's snowboarding season, I will actually take entire weeks off. Uh, I remember part of why I designed my schedule the way it was, I was, I did, was there was a, a period sometime a few years ago, and you know, we were running the podcast, and I was like, man, I'm like, these interviews are really getting in the way of my surfing time. This is becoming problematic. I need to figure out how to change this, because unfortunately, when you're a surfer, you're not on your own schedule. You're on the schedule of Mother Nature. Waves. And I thought, man, every time there's a swell, and it still happens to me now, I'm stuck doing an interview. So I finally decided to do one week on, one week off. Oh, wow. So that I could get water time in during the weeks that I had off. Uh, so exercise is a really big one. I'm, I'm convinced that physical activity is critical to creativity. I think that it's not a coincidence that many of the people who've been guests here on Creative Live, action sports athletes, it's not a coincidence in my mind that my surfing and writing journeys are parallel almost to the day. And that my most significant career accomplishments came after I, I developed these action sports habits. And, and I think it's also good to underscore it. It doesn't require like risking your life. No, no, not at all. But, <laughs> but no, it's it's important. Like like, but putting yourself out of your comfort zone, like that's part of creativity, right? It's like taking two things that are not necessarily supposed to be together or haven't been historically put together. You put those two things together and put them out in the world, and ideally they're new and useful. There's risk in that, right? There's cultural risk. There's social risk. And as soon as you can sort of get happy and comfortable with that small daily risk. That allows you to take sort of bigger risks, and those bigger risks are the things that tend to unlock into whether it's the new podcast, the new book, mm -hmm. or in many ways, like it could be a new career. Um, so you mentioned podcast a lot. In this process of um, interviewing, you've probably saw, seen patterns. Oh, we've yeah. talked about your habits, we've talked about exercise, we've talked about writing, sure. journaling, screen time. You certainly have seen through threads with your 700 guests. Give me a couple of them. Well, I think that 
the biggest one is that everybody who I've ever talked to who has accomplished something of significance is incredibly deliberate about how they spend their time. Everything in their life is a deliberate choice. None of it is by default. And so much of our life is set on default. Most people never change the ring on their iPhone. Most people don't change the home screen on their iPhone. You're making me uncomfortable. <laughs> it's, these are really small things. It, yeah, these these are it. minor things, but they're perfect examples of the fact that our lives are largely set on default. And the people that I talk to, every aspect of their life is a deliberate choice from where they live, from the clothes they wear, to the people they surround themselves with. That has, has always been a consistent theme. I think work ethic is another one. Uh, and it's not a work ethic of, oh, I work 120 hours a week, sleep deprived, but it's a consistent work ethic of, I'm committed to this thing that I want to get good at and I want to be world class at, and I'm going to do what it takes to get good at it. Uh, that has, across the board, the people that I've talked to have that in droves. In a lot of cases, I also think that they possess, in a lot of ways, which is somewhat necessary, uh, an almost irrational sense of optimism, which is required. It's an it's a irrational sense of optimism balanced with reality and practicality. They're not delusional, yep. but they're, I, I talked to this, this Harvard neuroscientist named Srini Pillay. One of the things that he told me earlier this year is that if you want to make a lot of money, he said, don't be realistic. He said, you want to think in terms of possibility, not in terms of reality. So I remember teasing that apart. And if you think about it, so much of the world that we live in today was impossible 10 years ago. Yeah. The idea that you push a button and a car shows up was impossible 10 years ago. The idea that you could build a website for $10 and be done with it and have it look beautiful in an hour was impossible. And if all those people had sat out and said, you know what, I'm only going to do what is currently possible. Think about all the innovation and all the creativity that would not exist in the world today. Speaking of, uh, I'm gonna, I got one more question, uh, and then I want to take a few minutes and take some of your questions. So now would be a good time to formulate some of those, such that when I come back to you in about 90 seconds, you've got a couple of, uh, couple of questions for Srini. Um, talk to me about... Um, there's an interesting relationship with technology. So you've personally said you haven't eschewed it completely. You, you've talked about how it's you know it's required. It helps scale. You, yeah. These are all these words. It was a lot of your previous uh, episodes of unmistakable creative when you're talking about blog. So technology is a thing, right? Yeah. It helps scale the, the work that you're doing. What's the balance? Because I'm listening to you t t say no screen time after eight, but that's I really I really want to publish my blog after eight. I really want to like polish that Instagram post after eight. So, what role? How can we have a, a sort of safe and healthy relationship with technology, and of course with the underpinning of trying to promote innovation? It's a good question, and I, I think what it comes down to is to have a deliberate and mindful relationship with technology as opposed to letting it be the thing controls us. It should be something that facilitates our creativity and expands our creative capacity, but it shouldn't be something that controls us. Largely, for many people, their relationship with technology is just a default behavior that's driven by addiction. And from everything we know from all the best behavioral scientists in the world, these tools are designed to do exactly that, to keep us coming back for more even when there's nothing there. We keep going back and thinking we're gonna find something there, and 
what you find maybe is a notification or a comment. And you kind of wonder, if I added all these things together in my life, have they really accumulated real value? Have I produced anything of value because I've accumulated all these notifications and comments? So I think really what it comes down to is having a very mindful and deliberate relationship. That is why things like a schedule in which you say, okay, you know what, I'm going to have this set time every day when I'm going to use these things, or I'm going to have these set times every day when I'm not going to use these things. Again, I'm, I'm not immune to any of these things. You know, it, I, it, for some reason, particularly when I'm traveling, I have a tendency to use them a lot because I have my phone and I usually don't have my laptop in front of me. But when I'm at home, I try to have a relationship with technology that is you know, on a schedule. I don't want it in my life at a certain point. Part of why I like surfing is it forces a complete unplug. You yeah. don't have to, you can't bring technology into the water. Yeah, you make a plan when you don't actually, you're not trying to make the plan under duress. You make the plan when you're of sound mind and body. Like, I'm going <laughs> to use my phone in these times. Not, should I use my phone now or not? Because that's, it's, it's yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, you're, you're making a decision, you know, in the moment, and often you're making that decision after having made hundreds of other decisions, which, you know, if, you know what, based on the, what we know about willpower, there's no way you're going to make a good decision after that. Based on what we know about willpower, I, I, I love it. It's awesome. We're, just, we're all human, right? Exactly. Speaking of humans, we've got some in the audience here, and I'm presuming that there might be a question or two. And you were fast on the draw there. We're going to pass a mic. Please tell us who you are, and then feel free to ask a question of Srini. My name is Melissa Dinwiddie. And, uh, I'm Hi, Melissa. Hi. <laughs> I'm a creativity instigator, and I'm I'm so excited to read this book because I've been evangelizing about this this stuff for a long time. So the subtitle of your book is "Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake," and you've also talked about about um, making art for the the pleasure of creating something beautiful, mm -hmm. and um, and and there's a tension between those two things, right? There's there's reclaiming creativity for its own sake, what I would call playing in the creative sandbox, Absolutely. you know, following your curiosity and just making messes and where it's, it's pure process, where it's not about the outcome. It's not about impressing anybody, including yourself, right? Yeah. So, and then there's making something that you're proud of, that, that you'd be proud to put your name on and share with the world, right? Uh -huh. So can you talk about dancing with those two things and the tension between those two things and how you dance with them? Yeah, I think it's, it's a really great question. So I, I think that part of what comes from this freedom to create in private is that you're liberated from all those expectations and standards is that you actually do get to play in that mess. I think that what a lot of people probably don't know at, at this point, hopefully they don't know, even though you can go find it on Instagram, is that the visual aesthetic of Unmistakable Creative was largely an accident. I, for some strange reason, uh, decided to embark on this 30-day project where I taught myself how to draw. And, you know, ironically, despite the message of this book, I documented the whole thing on Instagram. Uh, and my dad to this day makes fun of this project because he looks at it and he's like, this doesn't look like you know how to draw. It was like, because you know, <laughs> I, I had a picture, you know, I literally I started the project with a picture of uh, an apple and the very last thing I drew on day 30 was a picture of Steve Jobs. And I was like, that kind of looks like Steve Jobs, even though it doesn't. But, uh, but the thing is that that really sparked this whole idea of using visuals in my work and finding people who could bring those things to life. Uh, if, I, if that hadn't happened, I, I still don't think we would have the look and feel that we do today. So I, I think that if you give yourself that freedom to play in private without the pressure of it being good, 
inevitably you're going to end up with ideas that lead to something good. Uh, I can't draw, but I figured out that, wow, I can collaborate with people who can, and what a world it opened up to me. I'm Dr. Gladys Otto, and uh, I'm a psychologist and a leadership mentor, so I'm just fascinated around this whole concept of creativity, and what's popping up for me is the fear around it, right? So creativity has taken on, I think, Chase, you mentioned this, and it's taken on this this big thing, this big energy of having to be an artist or a dancer or a musician, and you mentioned how you can be creative writing code, mm -hmm. right? So my question is, how could you redefine even what creativity means in its simplest form so that that fear element within ourselves kind of gets diminished and we don't think we have to be creating masterpieces uh -huh. just to start doing something that is really of our true essence? Well, I think the fear thing is something we have to address first because I think that people who wrestle with this fear they look at people who've done really significant creative work and they assume that those people don't wrestle with those same things. But I look at 90% of what I write and think, wow, if somebody thought it was a good idea to pay me to write books, what the hell were they thinking? Uh, but the thing is that I know if I can get past that, I will produce something good and I'm convinced that that is the same case for anybody. Uh, as far as, as you know, how it comes out, I think that acting on an impulse of any sort that seems out of the ordinary that could be applied to your life or to your work is an act of creativity. So I, I love the idea of PostSecret because we would never think of You'll know handing PostSecret, out it's a website that you submit secrets to and then they publish them and it feels good to get that secret out there and a lot of other people healed. Sorry, I just yeah, felt it just in case anyone absolutely. didn't know. So I, I love that idea because it kind of, there's nothing that, it doesn't fall within the boundaries of creativity. It was just an impulse that this guy acted on. You don't want to hand out 3,000 self-addressed stamped postcards and say, share an anonymous secret. There's literally no creativity book or rule book or guide that would have said this is a creative project that's going to lead to millions of people. It's a desire to act on an impulse that he gave into, and I think that's really where it comes from. I think there's also some power in realizing that we're all just making it up. Yeah. yeah. Isn't that, like, like you mentioned Brandon Stanton, also a friend on the show, Humans of New York, if you're not familiar with Brandon personally, his website, Humans of New York, quit being a bond trader, moved to New York, lived in a, an apartment with, uh, that just had a mattress on the floor with the, the mission to, to photograph 10,000 strangers on the streets of New York and put them on a map. Random? <laughs> That's a very crazy idea to be a bond trader and to quit and to then to go do that. That is the creative impulse. Exactly. And if you realize that we can all be driven by those impulses and what makes you weird as a kid, again, citing James Victoria, who's one of your book, book blurbs, that's the thing that could make you stand out as uh, an independent creator. Um, awesome question. Uh, I've got time for one more question. All right. Hi, I'm Dr. Reva Robinson. Um, so I was just wondering who has been your greatest creative inspiration in your life? Wow, okay, so this, this is a tough question for me just because of the sheer volume of interesting and creative people I have been exposed to. In fact, three of them are actually sitting right by you. Uh, the two next to you are actually guests on the podcast. So that's a tough question. Uh, but as, as far as writers who I think have had a big impact on me, Stephen Pressfield has been a really big one. I've really always loved his work. I think it, it has definitely been one of the things I return to on a regular basis. 
Danny Shapiro's work that she's done, uh, in particularly in her book Still Writing, that book is one of those that I have underlined and highlighted tons of, and it's you know the most torn up book on my desk, and I return to it at least once a week. Uh, so if that's from a writing standpoint, from a uh, music standpoint, I think Michael Jackson, when I, I saw the documentary This Is It, my thought was, wow, how could I do that with a conference? It turns out that pyrotechnics at a conference are really expensive. <laughs> uh, so I didn't get to pull that part off. But another thing that I saw recently that I was really just baffled by, I was so blown away by it, uh, was there's a, a Chinese pyrotechnics artist named Saigo Chang. I don't know if you've ever heard of this no. guy. So he basically, there's a documentary on Netflix about him called Skyladder. The guy literally wanted to use fireworks to build a ladder into the sky because he wanted to connect Earth to God. It was the art in his eyes, this was the artistic equivalent of connecting with God. He spent 20 years working on this project and it failed numerous times. In those 20 years, the kinds of things that this guy did with pyrotechnics were my, I, I was really disappointed that I didn't find this story before the book went to print because I thought to myself, <laughs> damn it, like this is such a good story. I would have absolutely included it. And it was watching somebody like that push the boundaries of an art form and exceeding the limitations of a medium. You know, we typically think of fireworks as something that only occurs at nighttime. This guy literally has used the sky as his canvas and he did the, uh, he did something for, he did the uh, APEC conference in China and then he did another thing in Beijing in the middle of the day where he used colored powders and, you know, fireworks and all this stuff. I've never seen anything like it and I thought, damn, like I got to track this guy down. That to me was inspiring. And I bet you could go on yeah. and on because there's, that's like part of what I love about um, this book, about, the, about creativity, about the Creative Life platform. It's like there literally is something for everyone. And if you stand up in front of a sixth grade classroom, let's go back a few, second grade classroom, who wants to come to the front of the room and draw me a picture? Every hand goes up. Right? That's just a little reminder that, and if you ask that same question at 18, one or two hands go up, right? So that is, that, let that be a reminder that for all the work that our culture can do to train that out of you, that it's innate in you. Um, and I think the important part uh, to, to bring this back to the book is to, it, it's in you, it's in, it's in one, right? An audience of one reclaiming creativity for its own sake it's been a super treat to have you on the show. I want to, uh, before, before we let folks go, be sure to check out Unmistakable Creative. Where else can they find you in Podcast your world? is in iTunes, uh, and that's primarily the place where it is, and then unmistakablecreative.com, and then the book is pretty much available where, uh, anywhere books are sold. And how about, um, well, congratulations to you and to Thank Penguin, you. of course. Also, where else can people find you on the internet, uh, like social handles, Social handles, Unmistakable CEO on Instagram and uh, Twitter, and then uh, Facebook is just facebook.com slash Srini Rao. Round of applause for Srini. Thanks so much for being here. All right, that about wraps it up. But uh, hey, before you bounce, two quick things. Um, actually, I'm going to go three quick things. Thing one, A, thank you so much for being a part of this community. And I'm not quite sure how you, you landed on this podcast. It doesn't matter to me. The fact that we're all in this together and that we're able to have a conversation is awesome. I feel uh, honored to be in your ears right now and that uh, you've paid attention to 
what I've been doing, what Creative Live has been doing for some time, and whether it's been a day or 10 years, I just want to say thank you. It's also really important to know on the backside of that that I, I do a lot of responding to comments. So hit me up, on, you know, direct message me on, on Instagram or Twitter or at me. I try and respond as much as possible. So let's have a conversation that transcends me just being in your ears here. Let's try and do it some, somewhere out there in, on the internet land. That's thing one. Thing two, again, I'm not quite sure what channels you pay attention to me and my work, but please go check out. I'm at Chase Jarvis or slash Chase Jarvis or whatever on all the platforms. And it's really important to me. Also, if you wouldn't mind checking out Creative Live, it's something that not only myself, but 120 other committed hardcore badass people come to work every day uh, to build the place where creators and entrepreneurs learn. So check that out. They're just slash Creative Live or at Creative Live all over out there on the internet. All right. Until again, uh, probably tomorrow. I hope I'll hear you. I'll be in your ears maybe tomorrow and I'll look for your comments on the internets. Bye.